love and the joy and the grace of Jesus so that into the water of redemption we could have valid grounds for our faith in him and not only go do bad and rebel against him, but to intentionally be the good Samaritan the father is to us. Not because we're a very good person or a very good Samaritan, but a very good Jesus to us. And so he does that for us in baptism where we start to
what do you know? Is that better? Apparently, they're having some issues with the alarm next door, so uh, we'll, we, will, we will do our best to ignore that, and, uh, and I will do my best to talk over that. We're in a series in the law. This is the, the ninth week on that. We will be finished soon. We'll take a break, and then I'm really excited about some of the stuff we're going to be preaching through this fall. Um, you know, a number of years ago now, um, Live Science, it's a, it's a, it's a website, uh, Live Science reported on the research of a guy named Robert Feldman. He's a psychologist at the University of Massachusetts. And, and Feldman has, has done more than a little work in his professional career on the subject of lying. Interesting thing to be your, your, your pet subject as a professor, I suppose. Um, in an experiment he ran, he had strangers converse in a room for 10 minutes. And then independently, there, there wasn't a lot of guidelines, just kind of introductory conversations, I guess. And then independently, they were asked, each participant was asked to rate how honest they were in those conversations. And then independently, they were asked to review the conversations they had been recorded and to note anything that they had said that was not entirely accurate. He intentionally didn't use the word lie because lie is a strong word for us and we, we tend to say, no, no, I don't, I don't lie. But anything you said that's not entirely accurate at least once. Um, and and, and they, they named the, the total number of things that they had been not entirely accurate about. And at the outset, it was common for participants to suggest they had done nothing of the sort. They had been entirely honest. But after watching the tape, 60% of participants had been not entirely accurate or lied at least once. And the average of all the participants was two and a th about two and a third lies per person in 10 minutes. Now, that probably wouldn't be a surprise to uh, Susan Carnicero, a, a former CIA officer who has written and lectured on identifying lies and liars. And, and she says that the average person lies about, give or take, 10 times a day. Extroverts, by the way, lie more than introverts. <laughs> True. Um, but that just might be that they talk more. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting how in, in a society full of liars, we would be disappointed, you'd think, in, in last year's election. In a, in a Gallup poll from June of last year, so just over a year ago, 33% of respondents labeled Donald Trump as honest, and only 32% labeled Hillary Clinton as honest. And I know our gut reaction is to say, well, that's all politicians. Well, not really, because in March of 2008, the next couple election cycles, 67% said John McCain was honest and trustworthy, and 64% said the same of Barack Obama. And that was during the primaries, of course. Um, but Hillary Clinton didn't fare well then either. Clearly, 2016 was a long, bad year if you were concerned about the truth. And then the election gave rise to this phenomenon of fake news. News stories that were largely contrived and, and designed to induce mass sharing on social media. And as someone with a fairly large number of both liberal and conservative Facebook friends, I can say with some confidence that it was a fairly bipartisan affair. Um, we were crying out for truth, 
but all the while we were the means and the ends of propagating falsehoods. And amidst all of this mess, we have Exodus 20, 16, which pushes against the very fabric of our society, which society we are key members of. Our society is what it is because we are a part of it. And in Exodus 20, 16, we learn that God's people must be radically committed to the truth because God is radically committed to the truth. God's people must be radically committed to the truth because God is radically committed to the truth. And I'm going to make that case in the end, I think. Um, but I'm going to kind of assume it at the outset, and I hope that you will come along and see that what I'm saying is textual, it's biblical. And I want to tackle it by working through three sort of constituent parts of this mandate that I think point us to the big picture. And that is, I think we need to see that a radical commitment to the truth must be political, it must be personal, and it must be prophetic. A radical commitment to the truth must be political, it must be personal, and it must be prophetic. So let's break that down. Our commitment to the truth must be political. Where do I get that from? Well, I get that from the words bear false witness against. See, the language of this command points very clearly to a legal context. It's using a verb that, that very often is used to describe answering in formal proceedings. It uses an adversative preposition against. It uses the terminology of being a false witness, which is used extensively in the Old Testament in legal context. And so we've already seen that in these Ten Commandments, if you've been with us, I know we got a lot of visitors this morning, which is great. So just reminder or fresh information. The, the Ten Commandments are more than just moral principles. They are moral principles, but they are foundational to how Israel was to organize itself as a society. The command against adultery was designed to protect the sanctity of the fundamental one man, one woman marriage relationship that God instituted at creation. The command against stealing protected personal interests in a uniquely corporate society. The command against murder protected the sanctity of life, particularly in a society that was often tribal and without a, something like a regular police force to guard against crime. So in the same way, this command has a political dimension to it. And in this case, it's probably more at the forefront than in the other commands. To be clear, I'm using political in the sense of how a society governs itself and operates itself not in the sense of like electoral intrigue. Okay, I'm using it more in the sense of political science than in um, uh, politics. But in a, if you think about it, in a society before DNA evidence, let alone the ability to capture a, a fingerprint or, or take casts of the footprints of the suspect or any other good crime drama trope, the, the most important evidence, and perhaps the only evidence, would be an eyewitness. And of course, most legal matters were not what we would call criminal, but what we would call civil. Now, Israel doesn't appear to have made a distinction between criminal law and civil law. They were 
one and the same. So it's not like if, if somebody ripped you off, you know, they, they went to court for stealing, and then you took them to another court to get your money back, right? So that's kind of how we sometimes do it in the United States. And it wasn't that way in Israel. They don't make that, that same distinction. But either way, justice was in the hands of tribal or, or local elders in most cases. At other times and places, a senior figure like a, like a king might effectively serve as judge. And they could only render a decision based on the facts. And they trusted ordinary citizens to provide those facts. It may not seem like much. But consider how much of our political reality absolutely relies on the fact that we believe the truth generally prevails. The anecdotes I shared last year's election season notwithstanding, I think most of us believe we're going to get honesty in the public square more often than not. Yeah, we lament the mistakes, we bemoan the failures, we rail against them. But I think it's our expectation that the next time out, things will be different. We rely on that fact. If, if we didn't generally expect some modicum of fairness and justice and rightness to happen, we would be in pure anarchy. We, we would entirely rebel by our very nature. At this point in Israel's history, Gog was founding a new nation with a people who had been enslaved for 400 years. Before that, they were but a dysfunctional three-generation family, a very rich and very powerful family by all evidence, but a single family nonetheless. They didn't have a context for living as a civilized society as a unique unit on the face of the earth. And so insisting on truthfulness in the political sphere was absolutely essential. In fact, so strongly did God insist on truthfulness in the public square that the penalty for perjury was intense. Consider the instructions given in Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, we read, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest will hear and fear and shall never again commit such an evil among you. Take that in comparison to the state of Ohio, just for example. Uh, perjury in Ohio is a third-degree felony. So if you lie in an official proceeding, say a court of law, and it can be proven, you can be charged with a felony. It's pretty serious. 
But a third-degree fe felony is punishable by nine months to five years in prison, not to mention the fact that perjury is rarely enforced. What if someone was a false witness in a murder case or a large embezzlement case? Imagine that an effective life sentence is on the table. Nine months doesn't sound too bad, does it? But consider God's sense of justice. So desirous is he for truth that he stipulated that the false witness should get the same punishment the defendant would have get gotten. Was the defendant accused of stealing a farm animal so that he was going to pay back two animals if he was found guilty? Well, if you bear false witness against him, then you're going to be the one paying two animals. The punishment should fit the crime. You were willing to bring a two-animal calamity on this guy. That was what was in your heart. That's what you should pay. Were you going to lie about somebody to, to be a false witness who's on the stand for murder, facing capital punishment? You're willing to let an innocent person die to serve whatever your means or motives are, that you want to lie about that, you're willing to let this person die for your lie. Don't you deserve to die? How is it different than an attempted murder? It's a sort of murder by judicial proceeding, isn't it? That maybe sounds a little bit harsh to us. But I think if it does, it's because we're callous to how much the truth matters. We don't appreciate how much God loves the truth. So it says, purge the evil from your midst. The rest will hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. It's a bit of an aside. A little bit of a tangent, but not too much. Um, but do you think Israel's justice system had a strong presumption of innocence? Cons consider that. You had to have multiple witnesses. You had multiple eyewitnesses to convict. And you had exceptionally strong, you had to have a very strong reason to believe the witnesses were telling the truth. Right? Because if you believed that they weren't telling the truth, if you had any reason to believe they were lying... Such a person is not going to dare testify on a lie in court when they're facing the same sentence. And I think that Israel's system had a very strong presumption of innocence. So what does that, that mean for us from a political standpoint? Well, I'm not a theonomist. A theonomist is a, a person who thinks that we should try and take the Old Testament law and we should just make it the law code of the United States. I, I would not suggest that for a number of reasons. I think it doesn't grapple with the fact that the Israelites were called out of Egypt to be a holy people. And a law for holiness doesn't really fit with a people that has not been called out. America has not been called out uh, to be the unique people of God. Uh, I don't think any nation on earth has been uniquely called out to be the people of God like Israel was at the Exodus. However, God's law does reflect justice. And since we are the governors in our society, we are uniquely both the ruled and the rulers in this strange thing that we call democracy, we have a responsibility to help enact justice. 
which means at least promoting truth in the public square. If we are the governed, we are hurt by false witness in the public square. But if we are the governors, we have an obligation to demand better and to judge the offenders. In our case, that might mean voting them out. Christians, speaking of Christians now, too often we only care about the truth when it agrees with us. And we don't care about the truth when it doesn't agree with us. We justify lying in the interest of promoting greater, a greater cause. Sometimes we even champion it. Other times we just turn a blind eye. Other times we simply do not check the facts because we don't want to know. We click share on that Facebook meme because it agrees with what we already believe. Not because we've realized that it's absolutely true. What does that say about our love for the truth? Christians, stop making your politics and your pet causes the master of truth. And start making the truth the master of your politics. But, fair warning. You do that, your friends who have not shifted their loyalty from their pet cause to the truth will criticize you and will label you a traitor. Because we have a tendency to see in black and white. And, and we tend to be tribal and we tend to be loyalist. And if you're not 100% in the cause, you're disloyal. You're a, you're a traitor. But Christians, we must serve the truth first. But let's think more broadly about our politics. How is our society led by witnesses? both false witnesses and true witnesses? Are those witnesses being held to account? And what are we doing to hold them to account? To the extent that we have power, we have, we have a very significant power in this country. We talked about this in our, in our short series last year on, on God and government. We have, a, we have a very unique power in that we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that means the citizens of the United States of America are the rule makers, ultimately. If we don't like the rules that people are making, we can vote them out. We can hold them to account. We can hold referendums. We can hold ballot initiatives. And so it is not enough for the Christian to say uh, that the politics are just a thing of this world, and I don't have to do anything about them, or I'm not responsible for them. I don't think we get that option in a democracy. If we were under a, a monarchy or we were under an absolute dictatorship and we were just members of that society, that way might be different. We have a, a, an authority over us who makes all the rules for us. But in a democracy, we are both citizens and Caesar. 
And if we are Caesar, then we have a responsibility to promote truthfulness and so promote justice in the public square. Secondly, our commitment to truth must be personal. Where were you getting that idea from? Well, I'm getting that idea from the fact that it says in Exodus 20 that you must not bear false witness against who? Your neighbor. The commandment envisions the other person, the person you might offend as your neighbor. It brings him or her into the orbit of your personal relationships, even if you don't know them. In much the same way, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan and illustrated that the neighbor isn't the person who is the closest to you in ethnicity or language or culture or status. Rather, one's neighbor is the one who needs you in the moment whose path you've crossed. And your neighbor needs truth. They need to be spoken of truthfully. Lest there be any doubt, just, just a few verses later, really, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, God says through Moses, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. And then Leviticus 19.11 puts it plainly. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. And if you're keen to argue that there's a distinction between lying and deceiving, God's got you covered. They're both right out. So it's not enough to complain and whine about the lying in the public discourse. The false witness in our, in our courts of law, the regular deception of people for contrived ends, it's not enough. We have to make a radical commitment to the truth in our personal matters as well. Yet despite all of this, we lie regularly. Why? Well, go back to Feldman and his research. He says, the, the psychologist at UMass, he says it's pretty simple. It comes down to ego. Feldman said, quote, we find that as soon as people feel that their self-esteem self is threatened, they immediately begin to lie at higher levels. Interesting. As soon as people's self-esteem is threatened, people begin to lie at higher levels. Which, as an aside, is a way to find out what is really important to you or what's really important to someone else, when you see somebody sort of snap into a defensive posture and, and be willing to throw out almost anything out of their mouth to defend an idea, some of it bordering on not entirely accurate, you've probably hit on something that defines their identity and their self-esteem. It's probably a good question to ask whether those are things you want to define your identity and your self-esteem. I would hope that the thing that is core there, although we shouldn't go to lying because we don't need to, but hopefully the thing that you are defensive about, that you, that you react to, that hits your self-esteem and your ego, is Jesus and the gospel. If we're honest, though, 
look on Facebook, it's not always the case. Might as well be included. I think that Feldman's probably right, at least for the casual line that we engage in on an everyday basis. But I think he might be off a bit, and he might be a little too specific um, for all occurrences. Because we, we lie also to protect ourselves. That, that is protecting our ego, protecting our self-esteem. That's a sort of a self-preservation aspect of it. Um, but sometimes it's more than just self-esteem. Sometimes we might lie to protect our physical life, right? It's like the guy in the mob movie, you know, who gets caught crossing the mob. And, you know, it, you know it, I, I swear it wasn't me. you you, you got to believe me. You know, it, it's, it's self-interest, right? It's not necessarily self-esteem, but it is self-interest. Sometimes it's, it's for the sake of others that we lie. And, and that might be because our own self is tied up in the person that we're lying for or about. Maybe a son or a daughter or a parent or, or something like that. But I do think that it, it is about protecting a piece of ourselves, at least broadly speaking, is, is often why we lie. But yeah, probably we lie most frequently to protect our egos. Maybe you don't like the term lie. Maybe you prefer Feldman's term that we're not entirely accurate. But however you want to phrase it, we are false witnesses. We inflate our strengths, we deflate our weaknesses, we say things that are false, we deliberately leave things out that are true, or speak about irrelevant things to lead people away from the truth, we sugarcoat the truth, we tell white lies, we tell bold-faced lies. We're false witnesses. And the reasons why we feel like we need to protect our ego, which I think if we look below the surface, seem pretty petty. So, brothers and sisters, if we are Christians, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to give you law if you don't know Jesus, but if you know Jesus, are you radically committed to the truth of your neighbor? Your neighbor Whoever crosses your path is in need of the truth. Do you give it to her? Do you give it to him? Or is it something less than or more than the truth? Thirdly, our commitment to the truth must be prophetic. And when I say this, I'm, I'm, I'm anchoring a lot on the word witness. See, in the end, th this command is telling us not to be a certain type of witness, to not be a witness of lie. That's literally what it says. Do not be a witness of lie. The Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures makes it a compound word, pseudo-marturia, a pseudo-false martyr, we get the term for witness. We, she became a person who died for the witness, but originally just was a, a witness. The opposite of a false witness would be then, of course, a true witness or a faithful witness, a reliable witness. Amidst a number of, uh, of pithy statements, Proverbs 14 contains... Uh, a couple of couplets. 
about the false witness and the faithful, faithful witness. So in verse 5 of chapter 14 in Proverbs, uh, it says, A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. That seems like an obvious point, right? But it does bear dwelling on, and, and I'll say wh why we should dwell on that just a moment, is because we humans have a tendency to put people in the, what I call the PGP camp. The PGP camp is the, the pretty good person camp. And we can bury a lot of faults under the mattress of the pretty good person. But the writer of Proverbs reminds us that our assessment should be dependent upon their actions. Does a person lie? Then they aren't suddenly going to be a faithful witness. Don't operate like they are. Don't pretend they're going to suddenly be faithful just because they're a pretty good person. There's no pretty good person. There's sinners running around on a broken planet, some of whom who have been redeemed and forgiven and are being transformed in the likeness of their Savior and some who are not. But in and of themselves, there are no pretty good people. There are no PGPs. Um, I just say, you know, relationship advice uh, if you're dating. Proverbs 14.5, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness. You just hold on to that. You know, just stick that in your pocket if you're dating or thinking about dating someone. They lie. Be careful. Uh, but then drop down to verse 25. A truthful witness saves lives. But one who breathes out lies is deceitful. A truthful witness saves lives. What kind of witness saves lives? Lives. Well, we can extrapolate a bit in a, in a legal context. A, a faithful witness could save the life of someone who is wrongfully accused uh, of murder, for instance, or uh, any one of a num another uh, capital crimes in Israel. Going to save a life, perhaps. Um, perhaps uh, if, if somebody is really guilty, of, maybe they really are a murderer, and, and, and being faithful and bold and coming forward and testifying against that person saves the lives of other potential victims. So we can, we can imagine that in, in, a, in a legal context. But, but bear with me. Fast forward a second to, to Revelation chapter 1. And in Rav Revelation chapter 1, verses, verses 4 through 5, we have the Apostle John. He is writing a, a, a letter. He's writing a series of letters to, to different churches. He begins this, this book of prophecies that he wants to record for the churches. And it would help if I was in Revelation and not First John. One page away. And uh, uh, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn 
of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. And then you flip to chapter 3, verse 14, as, as John is uh, focusing a letter on the church in Laodicea. And, and he writes, he's, he's ordered to write, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus, who by his resurrection from the dead became the beginning of a new creation, which his disciples will share in. He is the faithful and true witness. Because we humans were separated from God by our sin and by our rebellion, God took on flesh. He revealed to us the Father faithfully, truthfully. And he died on the cross so that all who trust in him and repent of their sins can receive forgiveness. He rose from the dead, the firstborn of creation. And the promise that we, with the promise that we too can rise from the dead and live eternally to God. That is our great hope. And as Jesus is the faithful and the true witness, he calls his followers to be faithful witnesses with him. The same was true of Israel. They were to be witnesses of God's redemptive acts and the salvation that he manifested at the Red Sea. God's creating them into a new people called Israel. But too often in their rebellion, they were false witnesses to who God was and what God was like. Christians, if you're Christians, we are called to be faithful witnesses of the redemptive act of Christ. We are to be faithful and true witnesses to the gospel of grace. And that is radically prophetic. It's prophetic because our life and our words should be so characterized by grace that they condemn a dying world and point that world to a suffering Savior. Our words and our lives should be so beholden to Christ's beauty. And too often, that is not what they are. We should be so characterized by truth that people recognize that there's a sense that comes off of it, that there is a, uh, a sense of something different about us. And not just a sense, because truth is content, and content comes out in our communication, and people hear the truth, and they are moved by the truth, and, and, and our lives line up with the truth that we're speaking, so that lives and words are running on parallel tracks. When we are committed to the truth, it's 
prophetic because we live in a world that we have seen, that all the research indicates and shows. We know it because we, we respond to polls and surveys saying that this world is full of deceit and untruth. And we are called to be faithful and true witnesses to the God who saves. And that becomes personal too. Because if our neighbor needs truth, then he most certainly and she most certainly needs the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's political also. Because as people are moved to worship Jesus Christ, that should, if, if people are consumed by both the mercy and the justice of God, shouldn't that change how they govern? And in a society where the ordinary citizens share in the governance, then a people consumed by justice and mercy are going to govern differently, are they not? And so inevitably, the prophetic becomes personal. And then the personal becomes political. We can't escape those three. God is a God of truth. He does not lie. He does not deceive. Jesus Christ, our Savior, truthfully and faithfully revealed the Father to us. And he calls us to be like him, to follow after him, to take up our cross, even as he took up his cross. Are we being prophetic with our commitment to the truth? Does the gospel roll off our tongues and roll off our lives? faithful and true witness. So our witness, our, our commitment to truth must be political, it must be personal, and ultimately it must be prophetic. And if we hit the prophetic, we will hit the personal, and we will hit the political. It's, it's inevitable. God is a God who is radically committed to truth. He wants his people to be a people who are radically committed to truth. Let's be those people. Father, we confess that we are not those people. We confess that too often we hedge on the truth. We are fearful. We are afraid to speak what is true because we are afraid of the ramifications of speaking that truth. And most significantly to our shame, we stay silent about the gospel, the gospel that we know will save lives. May we be faithful witnesses who save lives, God. May we be people, Father, who do not shirk at our responsibility to share the hope and blessing of the good news of your Son and our Savior, Jesus May that commitment to truth 
rub out in every area of our lives. And may, may, may we just be a people that are, are known by the people. May, may people come and they hear about Gateway Downtown and they just say, those people don't shut up about truth. They're, they, are, they are just such nitpickers about the truth. And they just don't shut up about this Jesus and him dying for us. May we be characterized by that, Father. And may you receive all the glory for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst 